Morning. A little bit of family business uh, before we jump into our text today. Uh, I'm about to put some people on the spot, so just kind of bear with me. Uh, We just uh, went through a new members class, uh, bringing some new members into our fellowship. Uh, So we have new family members to welcome in today. Uh, I'm going to put them on the spot. You don't have to answer any questions. It's really simple. All you have to do is just stand up. So if you came through the new members class, would you just go ahead and stand up? So there they are there. These are new members. Let's welcome them into the family. You guys can sit down. That's all, that's all you have to do. Not going to put you on the spot anymore. But uh, if you are a member here, would you just um, maybe sometime today after the service, just welcome them into the family. Let them know that you're excited that they're uh, a part of, of uh, God's family here at Gospel Community Church. So let's get started today. A uh, little uh, fact that a lot of people don't know about me. Um, I, I personally uh, knew Johnny Cash. That's right, the man in black. I, I know uh, Johnny Cash. I, I have um, all of his records. Um, I've, I've listened to every, almost every song that he recorded, and, and Johnny Cash recorded lots and lots of songs. Um, I have uh, his records. I have Johnny Cash's records on, on my iTunes. So if you were to open up my iTunes, you would see um, all of Johnny Cash's records. And, and if you go to my iPod, uh, my iPod that I carry around with me everywhere all the time, uh, it has his greatest hits uh, collection right there uh, on my iPod so that I can listen to it anytime I want to. So not only uh, is, is Johnny Cash's stuff on my iTunes and my iPod, I have his actual records. Right. So for the millennials in the room, a record, it's a, it's a round disc and it's black and, and music is stored on it and you put it on a record player and you turn on it and you drop the needle thing and, it, and, and it, it like sound music comes out. I, I actually have um, actual vinyl records uh, from from Johnny Cash, and, and not only that, not, not only to have all of his music, and I've, I've actually memorized um, a, a lot of his lyrics. I, I know, I've, I've memorized his, his words, and, and, and I, know, I know them, so the, the taste is love is sweet when hearts like ours meet. I, I know, uh, I, I know his, his songs and, and his records, and, and I, even, I even saw the major uh, motion picture titled uh, Walk the Line. Anybody see that movie? It's it a documentary about his life, um, and, and so I, I saw that. I, I seen it several times, actually. I've, I've seen it. So uh, obviously, because I know Johnny Cash, I, I, saw, I saw the movie. Um, and, and, and not only that, uh, he and I share a ton of stuff in common. Just, just listen to this. Um, so uh, me and my friend Johnny Cash, we have so much in common. We share a similar past uh, with a addiction to prescription pills. Uh, we also share a similar belief in that uh, Jesus uh, helped us with our recovery. Uh, me and Johnny Cash both come from working class families. We both play guitar and love music. Me and Johnny Cash both love the color black. (laughs) Uh, We both love fishing. We both have daughters. We both struggle with a general disregard for authority. I know Johnny Cash. Obviously, I'm being facetious. You see, I don't actually know Johnny Cash, but, but I know a lot about him. So if I were to go to, he, he passed away sadly in, in 2003, um, but if I were to go to one of his daughter's houses and if I were to knock on the door and, and say, hey, I know your old man, um, let me in for some tea, okay? uh, they would call the cops, uh, I would be escorted off of the property and likely sent to a home because I don't actually know Johnny Cash. 
Sadly, this is the experience many people in the South have when it comes to Jesus. Many of us have experiences with Jesus, but we don't actually know Jesus. See, some of you, like me, were drugged to church every Sunday when you were a kid. Anybody's parents drag them to church? Make you go, don't matter, you're going. This is what we do. We're gonna drag you to church. You're showing up, right? So some of us have lots of experiences being drugged to church. Um, how many of you went to Sunday school, right? In a Sunday school. How many of you were like super varsity and you went to youth group? You, you went to the youth group, right? How many of you graduated from varsity and actually got your own King James Version Bible with your name at the bottom? Who had that? Okay, so we have experiences. Many of us have experiences with Jesus. A lot of us even know a lot about Jesus. We know he was a first century Galilean peasant. He was a carpenter. Uh, we, we know that he performed many miracles. We know that Jesus had a preaching ministry. Uh, we know that Jesus died on a cross. We know that uh, his followers said that he resurrected. Uh, we, we know the facts, but it doesn't mean that we know Christ. So this is the landscape that we find ourselves in, particularly here in the South. It's generally, using that term, it's generally socially acceptable to attend church, right? As long as you don't get too crazy. So it's okay. So, you know, yeah, sure, I go to church. Oh, okay, that's nice, cool. Okay, so it's generally socially acceptable to attend church and... There are churches everywhere. So it's easy to, to simply be a part of the crowd and not really be a true disciple because in our society, it's generally socially acceptable to go to church. Again, as long as you don't get too crazy. And there are churches everywhere. So here's the thing. You can go to this church because you like the preaching. You can go to this other church because you like the music. You can go to this other church because they have a great kids program. You can bounce around to church, to church, to church. You can go everywhere and belong nowhere. So you're not known. You're not held accountable. Uh, nobody knows. And so you get to just be a part of the crowd and not be a disciple. That This is the, the culture that we live in, the, the, the air that we breathe, particularly here in the South. So we find ourselves in a sea of people who would say that they're Christian, who, who might even occasionally attend church. They would say that they know Jesus, but they don't really know Jesus. So, the problem that our Southern Christianity creates is a lot of people who are a part of the crowd but are not real disciples. So let me begin with this question this morning. Are you a disciple or are you just a part of the crowd? Are you resting on your religious experiences or a personal experience with Jesus Christ himself? Do you know a lot about Jesus or do you really know Jesus? So we started a few weeks back traveling through the gospel of Mark. Uh, you know that is typically how we do things here. We just go straight through books of the Bible, line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, precept upon precept. We just go straight through books of the Bible. We find ourselves today in a very familiar story. The, the story where these, these four men tear the roof off of a house to get their friend to Jesus. Very familiar story. But what I want us to do this morning is zoom lens on uh, the crowd 
And these guys who Jesus acknowledges their faith, these disciples, these, these true followers, there, there is a, a great divide between what we see the crowd doing, the people in the crowd, just there watching Jesus, observing Jesus, finding Jesus very interesting and amusing and entertaining, and what we see these four men do as they jump into action, as they put their faith on display by the things that they do, and, and, and there is a great divide between the two. And so today we must ask ourselves, where am I? Am I just standing in the crowd watching Jesus because he's very interesting? Or am I a disciple who is jumping into action, putting my faith on display? Verse one. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So after uh, he had returned to Capernaum after some days, what's, what's been going on in the life of Jesus? Well, last time we left him, uh, he had healed a leper. Um, and, and so what's he been doing? After some days, some time, some days uh, have passed. Well, we can look at Mark chapter one, verse 39 and discover, and he went all throughout Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So what's Jesus been doing? He's been preaching the word. That's what Jesus has been doing. He's been preaching. He's been casting out demons. He's been going all over that region uh, and spreading the gospel. And, and we can see at the very end of chapter one, uh, but when, uh, when he went out, he began to talk freely about it and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming uh, to him from every quarter. So uh, Jesus' ministry is exploding. It's growing. Uh, he is a powerful preacher. People are drawn to him so much so that if he were to enter a town, the crowds would, would rush in just to try to touch him, just to, to, to get a piece of him. And so he can't even enter a town. Um, and, and plus, because his following is so huge, Huge, um, there's no place that can really hold them. So he has to go out in the middle of nowhere so that these crowds of thousands uh, can, can gather to, to hear him preach. Now, it says that he was at home. Uh, we're not exactly sure what home because the text doesn't clearly say, but it's very safe to assume that the home that he's in is actually Peter's home, right? We, we saw him there. We saw him heal um, uh, Peter's mother-in-law, uh, we saw him there kind of starting his ministry out of that place uh, as they were bringing people who were sick and demon-possessed to him, and he was casting out demons and healing people there in Peter's home. So it is safe to assume that he is here in, in Peter's home. Verse 2, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let down the bed with a paralytic lay. Many people were gathered together. They, they hear the, 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 the news goes out that Jesus is back in town and, and, and they can't contain it and people start showing up and a few more and a few more. And in this large town, there was likely hundreds of people um, kind of gathered around that home. You can imagine people just wall to wall jammed in um, th this house, jammed in these rooms just to, to get around Jesus, to be near Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus is a preacher, so if he's got a microphone and an opportunity, he's going to preach. So it says right here that he preached the word to them. 
Jesus' ministry, yes, was a healing ministry. Jesus' ministry, yes, was a casting out of demons ministry, but Jesus' ministry was primarily about preaching the word, getting the word to the hearts of the people. So what was he preaching? Well, uh, again, Mark in his fast-paced narrative doesn't give us much of an outline, but we know the short outline of what Jesus was preaching from Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. I'll read it to you. It says this, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying. So here is Jesus' message. Here is Jesus in the house of Peter, gathering people. People are gathered around, and here is what Jesus is saying. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is the message that is being preached in that home when people are gathered around. Repent. Jesus is telling people to repent. What does that mean? It means that Jesus was telling people they were sinners. (laughs) Jesus was saying, hey, you're messed up. You're broken on the inside. You got real issues. You need to repent because you're a sinner. Again, this is a really unpopular message. People don't, I don't like to be told I'm messed up, but the truth is I am. The truth is you are. And so Jesus was saying repent to them because they needed to repent because they were sinners. And while this is an unpopular message, the reality of this, the truth is, you are worse than you can ever imagine, (laughs) right? There's an encouraging word on a Sunday morning. You are worse than you can ever imagine. You have offended God in every way possible, and you have no way out. You have no way to make yourself better in any way possible. So he was telling them to repent because they were sinners, Now, you can imagine in that crowd what was going on in their hearts. You see, this is what separates a disciple from the crowd. You see, the crowd doesn't believe they're sinners. Of course not. I mean, think about how religious these people were. These were religious Jewish people who went to the temple, who went to synagogue, who knew their Old Testament. I mean, they they were God's chosen people, right? So, I mean, how in the world could they be said? Of course, they're not really sinners. You know who's sinners? It's those people over there. You see, they are the sinners, not me. It's them. And so here in America, it's exactly the same way. Aren't we God's holy chosen nation? Aren't we? I mean, we are just, we're the best at everything ever. And so how could we be sinners? Of course, we're not sinners. It's those people over there who are sinners. And we find ourselves constantly going back to believing that it's not me, it's them. It's whoever your them is. I don't know who your them is. Maybe it's Republicans. Maybe it's Democrats. Uh, Maybe whoever those people over there are. But it's definitely, it's certainly not me because I've got everything under control. I mean, all of the mistakes that I've made are justifiable. I mean, it's totally understandable the things I did. I mean, just look at my circumstances. Of course, I've messed up a few times. Of course, I've said the wrong thing or done the wrong thing, but that's totally understandable considering my circumstances. So there's really no need for me to repent. That's the difference between the crowd and a disciple. A disciple is brokenhearted. A disciple understands the depth of their sin. And so what Jesus is telling them is to repent in the next thing that he says in his message and believe the gospel. So repent and believe the gospel. So while you are worse than you could ever imagine, listen to this, you are more loved than you will ever know. That should have got a way louder amen than that. So you are worse than you could ever imagine, but you are more loved than you could ever know. 
You are clean, pure, holy, righteous in the sight of God if you're a Christian. You are a son of God. You are a daughter of God, loved by him, adored by him. So this is the beauty of the gospel is that we're worse off than we could ever imagine, yet we're more loved than we could ever know. We are sinners, yet God declares us saints. By his gospel, by his authority, he declares it so, and it is so. So he was telling them, he's preaching to them in that place, repent and believe the gospel. And the reason that we are declared righteous, the reason that we're declared sons and daughters of God is by his atoning work on the cross. You see, Jesus is nailed to the cross in our place for our sins. Because we are lowly, wretched sinners, it should have been us on the cross, but Jesus in a great display of love comes and takes our place. He says, no, you don't have to be up there. I'll get up there for you. So this is the message that he is preaching. So the message is being preached to them and a paralytic man is carried by four men. And they came in verse three and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now, we don't know exactly what's going on with this guy, but, but we know that uh, he wasn't able to walk. He, he had to be carried. And so you have to understand the lowly state of uh, someone who was paralyzed or unable to walk in uh, first century Palestine. Uh, without the invention of a wheelchair, uh, they would have been completely immobile. And so often what would happen is they would have to uh, rely on family members in the morning to carry them to the city gates or to carry them to the middle of the town where they would sit and beg because there were no jobs for handicapped people. And so the only way they could earn a living would be to ask for uh, money from the passers-by. So he was carried there. As they start to near the home, the, the crowd is there and they can't get in. They can't get their friend that they're carrying, their family, possibly family member. They can't get him to Jesus. The, the crowd is in the way. The crowd is obstructing them from getting to Jesus. You see, in Mark's gospel account, the crowd is presented as amazed Okay, they're, they're really interested in Jesus. I mean, he's very interesting. They're, they're amazed as, as they watch him. But they're also passive. The, the crowd is presented as very passive. Okay, they're just kind of sitting watching what Jesus is doing. The crowd is also presented as very fickle. At the end of this very text, it says, they were all amazed and glorified God. That's what the crowd was doing. But we know how the gospel of Mark ends. What is the crowd doing in the end? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So while the crowd is amazed here, just chapters later, they're not amazed at all. As a matter of fact, they're chanting, we should kill this guy. So the crowd is amazed, yet very passive and very fickle. The main thing that we learn about the crowd here is that the crowd is always obstructing what Jesus is trying to do. If we were to jump forward to chapter five, we'll see that a, a guy named Jairus has a very sick daughter and he's trying to get Jesus to come heal his daughter, yet it is the crowd that is essentially impeding Jesus from getting to Jairus' daughter. There's a lady who has an issue where, where she's been bleeding for over 12 years and she's trying to get to Jesus, but she can't get to Jesus to be healed because of the crowd. The, the crowd is impeding 
Jesus' work. Sadly, Mark never says the crowds repented and they chose to follow Jesus, even though that is the message that Jesus is preaching, repent and believe the gospel. The crowd never seems to do that. So here is what is clear from Jesus' ministry. Jesus does not tie the success of his ministry to the size of the crowd. So there are a ton of people there clamoring to hear him preach. Yet at this point in the story, only four are true disciples. Andrew, James, and John. Nobody is a true disciple. It's just a crowd full of people. So, if you're taking notes, jot this down. Liking Jesus is not the same as being obedient to him. Being in the crowd is not the same as being a disciple. There's a a very big difference between liking Jesus and being obedient to Jesus. To saying, hey, I like some of the things that Jesus does and says. As a matter of fact, being a part of the church is a cool thing because you get to meet new people. You get to have friends. Hey, somebody might want to like, go have coffee with you. You get to build relationships. Makes you feel good about yourself. Yeah, I, I really like this. This is nice. And then Jesus says, and I want you to obey me with your whole life. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's slow down a little bit. You see, these people liked Jesus. He was very useful to them but they weren't ready to be obedient to him no matter the cost. The crowd is standing and observing. They have a shallow enthusiasm, but it is the true disciples that jump in and do something. You see, uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John, what do they do? Well, they drop their nets and follow Jesus. And here we see these four men jump into action to get their friend to Jesus. What, what did they do? Look, look at it. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof. They, they took the roof off of the house. Now, here's what was happening. Um, back in those days, they, they would have built up the walls and then they would have uh, made large support beams that would go across. And then they would have smaller beams that would kind of go across the opposite direction. Then they would take a bunch of uh, hay or straw or some type of thatch and build that up on the roof. And then they would cover that with mud and it would dry and become clay. So this is how the roofs were constructed. And so some of your translations might say they dug a hole in the roof. So it makes sense when you understand the construction of the roof. So, so these guys start removing the roof. And, and so what would have happened is these were flat roofs. And on the side of the house, on the outside of the house, there would have been a stairway that led up to the roof. And so people use their roofs like, like we use our back porches. You go up there, you know, sit, sit down, hang out, uh, have a glass of lemonade, uh, enjoy the sunshine. That's what people did on their, on their roofs. And so there would have been an outside staircase to access it. So these men, they can't get in the house. They, they can be, and, 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 and so they're sitting there going, what, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We know if we can get him to Jesus, he'll be healed. We got to, guys, we got to do something. What are we going to do? One guy says, I got an idea. <laughs> Let's dig a hole in the roof. But, but we're going to mess up the house. Yeah, but we've got to get him to Jesus. He said, all right, looks like we're tearing up a roof today, boys. 
And they tote their friend up and begin to tear a hole in the roof. Now, you gotta get this picture in your mind. There's Jesus. He is preaching the word. He is preaching with authority. We've already seen that people are so amazed by his preaching. I mean, these, these people are locked in on this preacher as he is communicating God's word to them in a very real and powerful way. Now, you wanna talk about a distraction in the middle of a sermon. Now, we might have a crying baby every now and then. Uh, we, we might have some microphone issues, some feedback but this was some kind of distraction. Jesus is right there in the middle. I mean, he's throwing heat. He is preaching. And all of a sudden, you start to hear some noise up top. And, and all of a sudden, uh, dust and dirt start falling on people. You, you have to imagine that the people in that room after this, we're imagining what? They lowered the mat down. So this is like a four by six hole that they dig in the root. Like everybody, including Jesus, has to be covered in hay and straw and mud and dirt. I mean, they're just, they're covered as these men are just digging through this stuff. It's all falling down, just covering these people. So my big question is, how does Jesus react? I mean, he was right in the middle of his sermon. And, and, and we know that Jesus came to preach. We've already seen him say that. Sure, he came to heal people. Sure, he came to cast out demons. But he came to preach, and these guys just interrupted his sermon in a huge way. Is he going to rebuke them? What, what does he do? Look at verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. No rebuke here. Jesus doesn't start yelling at him, what do you guys think you're doing? I'm trying to communicate God's word right now, and you're totally ruining it. As a matter of fact, Jesus sees their faith and then says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. You see, what is so amazing is that Jesus did not see a feeling they had because faith isn't ultimately about a feeling. He did not ask them if they had ever been to the temple in Jerusalem or if they had had other religious experience. What he saw is what they did. That was a demonstration of their faith. They put their faith on display. It wasn't some kind of, oh, they have a nice, soft, mushy feeling in their heart for Jesus. No, they got up and did something. While the crowd is just kind of standing around, very amazed and interested, these guys got on their grind and did something. Now, what is the crowd doing? Standing around doing nothing. What are these guys doing? Ripping the roof off the place so they can get their friend to Jesus. So faith is not about feelings or your experiences. Faith is about doing. If you're taking notes, jot this down. Faith is an act in such a way that shows you trust Jesus to meet the deepest needs of your heart. Okay, so faith is acting in such a way that shows. So faith is acting. Faith is doing. Faith is acting in such a way that shows you trust Jesus to meet the deepest needs of your heart. So why do I go to church? Why do I serve in the church? Why do I strive to be obedient to God? Why do I attend a gospel community group? Uh, why do I tithe? Why do I give my money? Well, because all of these things connect us to the person and work of Jesus Christ, and it is the person and work of Jesus Christ that meets the deepest needs of my soul. 
You see, all of us are reaching out and looking for something. We're looking for something to solve the problem inside of us. We're looking to, uh, some of us look to drugs and alcohol to ease the pain that we feel. Some of us look to money. Some of us look to bigger houses, bigger cars. Some of us say, man, if I can just get to this position at my work or if I can just achieve these goals, then the deepest needs of my soul will finally be met. The ache will finally go away. And the truth is those things are not able to solve your soul's issues. It is Jesus that meets the deepest needs of our soul. And so faith or, or, or putting faith on display um, is acting in such a way that shows, no, money is not my God. <laughs> no, no, family is not my God. No, hobbies are not my God. Jesus is my God. And so this is how I order my life to show that Jesus is my God. That's what faith is. And these men decided to order their life on this very day by going up the stairs, listening to where the noise was coming from. Where's he preaching at? Where's he? Oh, he's preaching over here. And, and then they began to act on their faith and dig a hole <laughs> in this roof to lower their friend down to get him to Jesus. Now, Jesus' response here is very interesting. <laughs> they went through a lot of trouble to get this paralyzed guy to Jesus and he doesn't reward their faith in the way that we think he should reward their faith. <laughs> Look at it. Son, your sins are forgiven. It's like, whoa, 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 Jesus. Uh, we just, you know, marched all the way here carrying this guy. We marched up the stairs. We dug the hole in the roof. We lowered him down. You were supposed to say, take up your mat and walk. You said, I, 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 I'm sorry, I, I must have heard you wrong right? Not your sins are forgiven. It should have been, son, you are healed. So try this again, Jesus. You, you messed up. You, you try again. No, no, that's clearly what, son, your sins are forgiven. This is exactly what Jesus says. Jesus says this for this reason. Listen very carefully. Jesus shows them that there is something worse than physical suffering. Now we live in a world that doesn't believe that right? Uh, the church is being replaced by hospitals and doctors, okay? We think the worst thing ever is to be sick or have physical issues, and so it's all about living healthy, being healthy, right? So, so physical suffering is the worst thing ever, and Jesus says, no, it's not. Here's the worst thing ever, being separated from God. Here's the worst thing ever, sin that's in your life that's crushing you, that's ruining you, that's breaking you down. That's the worst thing in your life. And so he addresses the true need, the real need, the ultimate need, which is to be forgiven of sins. This is what separates the crowd from the disciples, being forgiven of sins, being reunited with God and living for him. So, so friends, who are you living for? Everybody's living for something. Everybody's living for somebody. To say I'm a Christian because I go to church is like saying I'm a car because I've walked into a garage. You're not a Christian because you just show up to church. You're a Christian because you have decided to devote your life to Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. Matthew 16, 25 says this, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jot this down if you're taking notes. A disciple's life is devoted to Jesus, and there are miles 
and miles of difference between interest and devotion. Not just interested in Jesus, think that he's useful, think that he's neat. There's miles and miles of difference in simply being a part of the crowd, sitting in the chair, sitting at the pew, watching, observing, oh, this is very interesting. Miles and miles of difference of, I'm gonna be totally devoted to Jesus Christ. Whatever he says to do, I'm gonna do. Wherever he tells me to go, I'm gonna go. Whatever he tells me to sacrifice, I'm gonna sacrifice. No matter the cost, I'm devoted to Christ. Now, we're going to meet some very interesting members of this crowd. We're going to meet some scribes here. And essentially, uh, they ask two rhetorical questions. Let's take a look at, at these guys. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? These scribes were very well-respected members of the community. They knew their Old Testaments very, very well. Um, they would serve almost as lawyers and judges to help solve issues that would arise in the community. Uh, scribes were so well-respected when a scribe would walk into the room, uh, people in the community would stand to, to show uh, reverence and, and to show how important these men were. So scribes were very well-respected. And it seems that they have these two rhetorical questions, questions that they're sort of, they're asking, but they're not really looking for a real answer. They're assuming the answer already. So now some of the scribes are sitting there questioning their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? Meaning he should not speak like that. that that's what they're, it's a rhetorical question. That, that's, what they're, that's what they're getting at. Again, the biblical understanding of sin is that ultimately, all sin is against God. So they're very confused as to why he is speaking this way, right? Because all sin, even, uh, even if I harm you, uh, even if, if, if I uh, tell a lie about you, well, guess what? You are an image bearer of God, okay? His possession, his child. So ultimately that sin is against God, okay? So um, all sin is, is ultimately against God, and Jesus just said to this guy, your, your sins are forgiven. Then they ask this next rhetorical question, who can forgive sins but God alone? Again, they're assuming the answer, only God can forgive sins. And they're absolutely right. According to Exodus 34, 6 through 7, Psalms 103, uh, verse 3, and Isaiah 43, 25, all clearly state that it is only God who can forgive sins. That's what the Bible says. So they have the correct logical structure, yet they arrive at the wrong conclusion. So correct logical structure. If this, then this, right? That's a simple um, if he is a bachelor, then he is not married. It's a simple if this, then this. So their logical structure is only God can forgive sins. He is not God. That's what they arrive. They arrive at the wrong conclusion, yet with a correct logical structure. Now, the correct answer is no one can forgive sins but God, and Jesus just forgave sins. Therefore, Jesus is God. That, that's, the, that's the clear answer that they should have arrived at. Look at verses uh, eight and nine. And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Listen to this question. 
which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to rise, take up your bed and walk? Now, I thought about that question a lot this week. He asked them, right? This is typical Jesus judo, right? Jesus, okay, so, so in judo, if you, if you study martial arts, which I don't, um, uh, but if you do, you know that the key thing in judo is to use the force of your attacker against them. So this is exactly what Jesus is doing, a typical Jesus judo, right? So he, he takes the force of their attack and flips it on them and says, okay, which one's easier? to tell him his sins are forgiven or to tell him to get up and walk? <laughs> Both? Oh, uh, the first one. No, no, the second. Okay, they're, they're both impossible, right? To be able to forgive sins or to tell somebody to get up and walk. It's, it's almost like a trick question that, that they're, they're kind of coming and attacking him. But what is so interesting is that they don't verbally say that. Uh, Jesus just knows what's going on in their heart. Yes, Jesus is a mind reader. So he knows what's happening. He knows what's going on in their hearts. And he just says this to them. He poses this really interesting question to them. Listen as he continues on. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never saw anything like this. Why does he pose this kind of trick question to them? Well, he is proving a point. He's he's proving a point. You see, humanly speaking, there was no outward evidence that Jesus forgave this guy's sins. It's not like Jesus said, hey man, your sins are forgiven, and like he got six foot taller and got six pack abs, you know? There was no physical sign in him that showed his sins were forgiven. So Jesus is going to remedy that. He's going to remedy their their doubts and give them a physical sign to let them know, yes, he does have the authority to forgive sins. So to give evidence to them that he had the power to forgive forgive sins, he heals the man. You see, the proof was in the pudding. A man holding a mat and walking proved without a doubt that his sins were forgiven and that therefore Jesus is God. That's what just happened. Very interesting. Look at um, what he, he has to say. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. He calls himself this very interesting title, the Son of Man. Um, I've been in many conversations with people who, are, who don't believe that Jesus was God. I've been in many conversations, and, and I've actually been in conversations where people have cited texts like these to say Jesus never said or claimed to be God. As a matter of fact, he called himself the Son of Man. You see, so therefore, uh, Jesus is not God. The problem is Jesus knows his Old Testament Bible, and apparently the person I was talking with didn't. Because Jesus uses this term for himself 14 times in the Gospel of Mark. It is one of his favorite titles for himself as he is talking and communicating with other people. Jesus constantly refers to himself as the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man has come to preach, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, the Son of Man. Where is he getting this from? That's correct. Who is here when we study through the book of Daniel? 
We know that it comes through uh, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Listen to this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. By Jesus saying, I am the son of man, he's claiming right here to come from heaven. This is where the Son of Man comes from. Coming with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. This Son of Man is able to be presented before the Ancient of Days, God the Father. Now, let me ask you, if you know your Old Testament, what happens to people when they go before God? What did Isaiah say when he shows up, when, when he is transported before the presence of God? He, he is crushed onto the ground and says, I am ruined. Any person, any man, any sinful person who stands before God is utterly crushed. Yet this son of man uh, is able to be presented in power, majesty, and glory before God the Father, the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days was presented before him, verse 14, and he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations, languages should serve him. Jesus here is claiming to be God by giving himself the title of son of man because he is saying that everybody should serve him. That's, the, that's what Jesus is saying in that title. Son of man, that means uh, I come from heaven. That means I'm able to be presented before God, the father, the ancient of days. That means all dominion, all power, all glory should be given to me because I am the son of man prophesied about in Daniel chapter seven. And that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Jesus is claiming to be eternal. <laughs> dominion, an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. Jesus here is claiming to be fully God. This is what he is saying about himself. Not only does he say he is fully God, he gives evidence that he's fully God by healing this guy showing that his sins are forgiven, showing that he has the authority to forgive his sins because he is God. Now, now that we know that Jesus is God, what does he want from us? This is a very crucial, important question, probably one of the most important questions you will ever answer in your entire life. If Jesus is fully God, what does he want from me? If Jesus is the ultimate authority over the entire universe, if, if he owns the planet, if God created everything, it means that it's his. If God created me, it means I am his. And so I should be subservient to what it is that he wants me to do. Does that make sense? So what is it? Answer, total devotion to him. That's what Jesus wants, total devotion. He wants your whole life, not a part of it. He doesn't want you just to be interested in him. He doesn't want you just to be amused by him. He wants total, complete devotion. If you're taking notes, jot this down. He said he was God, then he demonstrated the power to prove it. So don't just be interested or amused by him. Be devoted. Yeah. Friends, there is two camps to be in. One, total, utter devotion to Jesus Christ or total rejection. That's it. Don't live in some type of reality that doesn't exist that you can just live in some middle place to where, yes, Jesus is interesting and nice and I kind of like this Christianity thing. It's, it's very interesting. I'm kind of sitting in the middle. No, Jesus wants total devotion, right? Or you should totally reject him. C.S. Lewis um, gave a very famous, it's called a trilemma. 
C.S. Lewis said that Jesus is either a lunatic, he is a liar, or he is Lord. But he has left us no room to think he is just a nice, interesting guy. Anyone who claims to be God, anyone who says, I can forgive sins, anyone who says, oh, by the way, I'm eternal, okay? That person is insane. That person is a lunatic. They're crazy to make, I mean, just imagine if I were making those claims about myself today, you guys would be like, oh, he needs a sandwich and a nap. Like, <laughs> he, he needs some time away. He needs some rest. He needs to go somewhere and do something else. He crazy. That's what you would say about me if I just made those claims. If I said, I'm the son of man, and all of my descriptions are there in Daniel chapter seven you would say, you're crazy. You would call me a lunatic. Um, or uh, I would be just a total liar, just making stuff up for selfish gain. Um, I, I would be trying to profit off of you, right? I'm, I'm you know, the son of man, I'm God here. Oh, and don't forget to tie the boxes in the back. You know, I would be a total lunatic. I would be a liar. But Jesus here is saying these things because they're true. So for people who think that Jesus was just a nice, interesting teacher, I, I say to you, that's totally insane. You can't think that he's just a nice teacher, that he had some interesting, nice things to say. You must say that he is a lunatic, you must say that he is a liar, or you must bow the knee to him as Lord. Now, you wanna know the really exciting part about this story? The really exciting part about this story is a part of the message that Jesus was preaching to us as we saw in verse 15 and saying the time is fulfilled. I'm back in chapter one of verse 15 and saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's what's so exciting about this passage. That the kingdom of God was breaking through. You see, in the kingdom of God, Sin is done away with. And that's exactly what he says to the paralyzed man. Son, your sins are forgiven. The kingdom of God was breaking through right there in first century Palestine. The kingdom of God was coming through. And, and, and the, the, this was the inauguration. And friends, we are waiting for the culmination of the kingdom of God to where all sin, all shame, all pain will be eradicated forever. That's what we're looking forward to. The kingdom of God was breaking through because this broken man who had a broken body was healed and made right. We're, we are looking forward to that day when there will be no more cancer. There will be no more paralyzed people. There will be no, no more birth defects and deformities. All that will be taken away by the power of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is breaking through here because this man is forgiven of his sins and his body is healed. And the kingdom of God will ultimately culminate when our, all our sins are washed away forever and our bodies are made with a forever resurrection body with Jesus Christ together with him forever in a real place called the new heaven and the new earth where we will live with him forever in perfect peace, beauty, and harmony. That's what's exciting about this text. That the kingdom of God is breaking through. And so here we find ourselves today waiting on that glorious day. But until that day, not living as a member in the crowd, but living as a disciple, fully, completely, totally, utterly devoted to Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a demonstration of people who come and are willing to do whatever it takes to get their friend in front of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, uh, that, that you have shown us here in your holy word 
that we are to be totally devoted, that, that some type of just considering you as interesting or some type of nominal Christianity is no Christianity at all, that you're asking for total, utter, and complete devotion. I pray for specifically the people in this room, Lord Jesus, that, that they would be totally, completely, utterly devoted. I pray now for the mighty power of the Holy Spirit to come and rest on these people, that you would drive their hearts through the power of your Spirit now to, to let us live devoted lives, that the areas where we're trying to keep to ourselves, the areas where we're trying to hold on to and say, no, 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 I don't want you to take this, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit now, release that, release, release that, release that from our, our grasping hands now, and let us give all of our lives, all areas of our lives, our sex lives, our, our, our money, all, all of it, everything we have, Lord, empower us by your spirit now to turn it over to you to be completely, utterly devoted. This is our cry, Lord Jesus, because we know that living a life devoted to you is where we will find our deepest joy and where all of the needs of our hearts will truly be met. So let us be that people. Let us be a people of total devotion. We ask all these things in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.